This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campuses join with us over in Appleton and in Stevens Point. Let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> and again, good to have you with us uh, this morning. I'm Mark Unger, pastor here at Celebration Church. Excited about... Uh, Holy Week now, this is Palm Sunday today, the beginning of Holy Week, uh, celebrating the day 2,000 years ago when the crowds cheered Jesus as he entered the city of Jerusalem, shockingly, and we'll hear more about it in the message, uh, by the end of the week, this crowd is yelling, crucify him. It's amazing. Well, you want to talk about changing public opinion? <laughs> <laughs> that one happened very fast. We're taking a little bit of a look at that today. But then we're going to start into this week. Wednesday, we're having a special service. Uh, we always do the week of Holy Week, uh, where we're going to have a, a, a time of sharing and worship and baptisms. People that have given their lives to Christ over the last several months are going to be baptized that night at all the different campuses. So you want to be there for that. Then our Good Friday service. Don't want to miss it. One of my favorite services of the year, a reflective service <clears throat> where we just think about what happened on that day when Christ was crucified for us. Then on Saturday's the big brouhaha for the kids, the Easter egg hunt and stuff. Want to get uh, them out there for this. And then, of course, Sunday morning Easter. Uh, you'll probably want to come a little bit early. Uh, attendance seems to bump a bit <laughs> on Easter. So uh, uh, I want to invite you to come out and, and be a part of all of that. Also, just to remind you that our big couples event is uh, coming the first weekend in May. Uh, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. Now, uh, this isn't just for married couples. It's for anybody. If you're dating, if you want to be dating, if you're a teenager, you know, you want to learn about crazy before you get there. All right? So this is going to be eye-opening experience, a lot of fun, a lot of laughter as we look into this complex situation of relationships, and it is a lot of fun. If you've never been, we come back and do it every two or three years here. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and you ought to come check it out. This morning... The bishop is in the house. Would you give a warm welcome to my brother, Bishop Ed Gunger? Good morning. 
Would you stand as we read the gospel? Let's honor the Lord. The church has traditionally, through all of her centuries, stood when the gospel was read. This is out of John's gospel, chapter 12, the great story of Jesus entering with procession into Jerusalem as he enters his passion. Starting in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, raised from the dead, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Lord, help us hear your word. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> the crowd in the text here is crying out, Hosanna, which means, they're crying it to Jesus, the word means, Lord, save us. Hosanna was an expression of praise because it implied that the person who was being asked to save was actually capable of saving and therefore worthy of praise. We know from this story told in the other Gospels some of the information there, that the people were not only bringing palms, but they were bringing cloaks and they were throwing them on the road upon which Jesus rode his donkey upon. The gospel writers believed that the actions of this crowd were due to their recognizing or hoping that Jesus was the Messiah and that they were hoping that he would be the king. Now, they're thinking, as Lathan nodded to earlier, they were thinking that Jesus, or that Jesus was going to conquer them in a kind of kingdom way, taking over and pushing back Rome. But they were looking to him in this role, and uh, the crowd was actually reciting a very familiar ancient messianic psalm here. You remember the psalms were the prayer book of Israel. So they were very familiar, like the, our father is to us. These psalms were very familiar to them. And so here they are in this crowd, and they begin to chant this Hosanna. It's actually from the psalms. So they all knew what they were saying. And let's, let me read you the text. I'm going to start it. It's this Psalm 18, I'll, 118. I'll start at verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. That's the word Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he. That's what they were saying. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is our God, and he has made his light shine upon us with boughs in hand. Those are the palms. Join in the festal procession. There's the procession. Up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks. You are my God. I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So again, in our gospel story, the participants of the crowd are reciting this psalm and acting out this psalm in expectation that Jesus was the coming Messiah. Another interesting thing to note here is that the text points out that Jesus rode a colt and which would have been an animal so young that it would have never been ridden. And what's interesting and what caught the attention of the disciples is they had seen Jesus come and act in ways that were so surprising to them, where they would, he would rule over natural things like storms or walking on water. 
And here, the miracle is, is that in the middle of this excited crowd that are shouting, right, this unbroken animal who had never been ridden, is, is Jesus is sitting and this colt underneath him remains calm in the, in the hands of the Messiah who controls nature. It was surprising enough to the disciples that they make note of it here. But what's so odd, as Mark just alluded to, is that this same crowd that's crying out this day, Hosanna, save us, help us, is the very ones who just a few days later are crying, crucify him. What happened? Why? The answer to that is because they were disappointed in Jesus. The Messiah of the Jews that the Jews were expecting was a conquering one. That's what Messiahs do. They save, they deliver. They make war on those that are oppressors to us. They expected Jesus to conquer Rome for them, to rid them of their impressment from Rome. They hated being ruled by another nation as we would if we were in our country being ruled by some other nation. In that ancient world, donkeys were often ridden by rulers in times of peace, and they didn't really want Jesus to be a peacemaker. They wanted him to be a war maker. And his action of riding a donkey into Jerusalem was really Jesus saying prophetically that he was a king who would take a peace-loving approach to solving the great crisis that was going on in Israel. The nation of Israel was jacked up with hope at this point in history, hoping that somebody would help them deliver from the Romans. But yet, this hope was disappointed when Jesus is arrested and when he's tried, and they're looking at it saying, this must not be the guy we were looking for. So instead of crying, Hosanna, it gave way to crucify him, get him out of the way. It's not that God wasn't acting for them. He was. But he didn't act for them in the way that they had expected him to act for them. We still have this problem. I mean, there are a lot of times when we cry out to God and he meets us right where we are in ways that we expect him to, whether it's a cry for forgiveness when we feel this sensation of guilt and all of a sudden we feel that resolve in us, or we cry to God to resolve some sort of problem that we're dealing with, whether it's financial or some other problem, and all of a sudden we see that God begins to resolve that and we feel like, oh my gosh, not only has God resolved it, he's gone beyond my expectation. All of us have stories like that. Or we cry for strength in the midst of weakness and somehow we're given this ability to stick in there and to be persevering and to have courage and we smile because it's beyond us. We've tasted of the divine. But there are other times when we cry out to God and it just, he just doesn't seem to respond at all. Or if he does, he meets us in ways that we did not expect or ask him to meet us. God wants to help us always. He wants to save us always. But I'm not sure we even know what's best for us when we ask sometimes. And uh, our cries should be, you know, we have these cries we want to be answered in a certain way. I'm not sure we have the wisdom to know, do we really want that, right? Um, think of a first grader. <laughs> that, would you really give a first grader everything they wanted? Right? Uh, when I was eight years old, I was thinking of this story the other day when I was eight years old. There was this girl named Candy who didn't really knew I, know I existed, but I had like this thing for Candy, 
And uh, I remember I just wanted to bump into her. You know, I don't know what I would have said, but I just wanted to bump into her. And I was one particular cold October morning. I remember walking over to her house, a little park out in front of her house. And I, w- I went over there and I was just standing by the tree, you know, looking at her house, hoping she might come out. She never came out. But, but before I went, I got myself prepped. I'm eight years old, brill cream was in, so the wet look was kind of in. And I remember combing my hair in the bathroom, looking in the mirror and combing it just perfectly and praying, Lord, could you make my hair stay like this forever? (laughs) There are some prayers you should be glad that God does not answer. See, this may be hard for us to accept, but God may not answer your Hosea cry, Hosanna cry by meeting all your expectations. His response was surprising and deeply disappointing to this Jerusalem gang that's in our, in our gospel. His answer to their Hosanna cry was to die for them, to take on their sin and to conquer the way that death had dominated the world. And they did not see that coming, nor understand why that would be important. Sometimes a surprise from our Savior is a surprise that we don't really value. And we have to decide that when God doesn't do what we've asked him to do, and when it seems like he hasn't heard our cry, we have to decide whether we're going to trust anyway. Some of you have cried Hosanna because you wanted a particular relationship to result in marriage, but it didn't. Some of you have cried Hosanna over a specific job that you really thought you wanted, but you didn't get it. But you look back now and realize sometimes, man, I don't know if that would have been the best thing for me. You look where you're at now, and sometimes I'm not sure that that would have been all that. Just maybe God really does have our back. And when we don't understand that he does. And and after all, Christian theology claims that God is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing, which means, well, and the fact is we're creatures who are at best partially omniscient. Right? We're partially knowing. We don't always know what's going on. We don't always know what's best for us. But we have someone who has our back. At least that's the claim. A friend of mine lost his job from a firm after about eight years working there, and he was in the, you know, in the heat of his career. I mean, this is not what you want to have happen. And uh, he, the firm went belly up. He was in management. Then he got another job. And when he got that, things started drying up there. It had only been a couple of years, and he called me. Right when the lost first job, I told him, listen, God will work this out. Just be faithful. And, you know, and he got this other job. Then that job dried up. And he's saying, Ed, he said, you know, two jobs in about three years span just does not look good on a resume. He's a CFO, so he's up in upper management. And he, he, he had a wife, three kids in grade school. He was wondering, why is God letting this happen to me? And I said, man, I told, man I'm really sorry. This is really awful. But I don't know. I have no idea. I don't even know if God's doing it. It might just be you're in a world where things change. But I do know this, we should trust God together. And let's pray to you, let's pray into this. And just keep praying into that and just be open and, and, and watch that what God will do because he's bigger than this and it'll work out. So, well, after a few months, he got a job at a local hospital. It was a good job. But because of the hospital policy, he had to go in and get a TB test 
just, and, and then as he did that, you just casually walked into one of the doctors that was in, there was officing in that, in the hospital. But as he was getting the test in his arm, that guy happened to be a dermatologist and he looked at something on his arm. He said, look, can I? He said, that doesn't look right. He said, can I do something with that? Can I test that? Tested it. And it ended up that he had had a deep mole that was, that was a melanoma. And the doctor cut it out, had cut a huge chunk out of his arm. And that's been years and years ago and he's fine now. But the doctor said to him, he said, you, you are really lucky that I saw that. Because that, that if it would have broken and spread, you, you would have lost your life. Now, I know it's pretty fantastical to suggest that my friend's whole bumpy career road was orchestrated by God to get him to a place where that cancer could be caught before it was too late. I don't know if I even believe that. But what if? <laughs> I mean... I do believe that you get luckier when you follow God and trust him. There's a text that says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Disappointments in our lives can often look like appointments. If you look through the eyes of faith, somehow things can change. And, and the actions of God for us, I think sometimes he intentionally couches them in the coincidental. Because, you know, one of the things God asks of us is to trust, is to have faith. And faith is trusting in a being we don't see and who's doing stuff that we think, well, is that really God or is that something else? Classic example of this is in John 12. Jesus is praying, Father, glorify your name. And the text says, then a voice came out of heaven saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then the text says, the crowd that was there heard it, that voice. And some said, it thundered. And others said, an angel speaking. In other words, when God does some stuff in our lives, sometimes when you really look at it, you're not sure what that was. Was that God? Was that coincidence? Was it, you know, what was it? it I think God often works just like that. He tucks away and says, you know, it's like Goldilocks story. You know, when they walk in, the bears walk in. It's based on a true story. <laughs> the bears walk in and, you know, they notice somebody's been messing with my porch. Somebody's been sitting in my chair. Go a little further. Somebody's been, my, it isn't until the end of the story they find out all that mess in around Goldilocks, right? I wonder if, if when we get into eternity, God will say, I was the one messing with your porch over there, <laughs> and I was the one messing with your chair. You know, that, I messed that all up for you. Just give you a little hint. Something might be going on. What if? My point this morning is, cry Hosanna in your life. <laughs> Call upon the Lord for help. What a great prayer. Help is such a great prayer. And here's the promise, Jeremiah 33. Call to me and I will answer you. What does that mean? God responds to Hosanna's. I don't think his response is an actual audible voice or anything like that. I, I think he speaks to us in some sort of a, some sort of a precognitive or, or, or a pre-rational level. In other words, it's kind of a heart thing. You know, kind of like falling in love. What is that? What is that thing when you fall in love? What's going on there? It's just, it's a little 
ineffable. In other words, it's hard to describe with words what's going on. I think that that kind of thing is going on. Knowing God is not a normal knowing. They call it in philosophy epistemology, which means how you come to know what you know. We can't know God like we know other things, like gravity. If I hold this up and drop it, and I hold this up and drop it, you know repeatedly there's something going on. There's gravity, right? We don't know God like that. Knowing God, the epistemology required for knowing God is of a different ilk. Here's an example of it that many of you will relate to of this gentleman that's sharing what happened to him when he had an encounter with the divine. Quote, I remember the night and almost the very spot on the hilltop where my soul opened out, as it were, into the infinite. And there was a rushing together of the two worlds, the inner and the outer. It was a deep calling unto deep, the deep that my own struggle had opened up within being answered by the unfathomable deep without. Reaching beyond the stars, I stood alone with him who had made me and all the beauty of the world. The perfect stillness of the night was thrilled by a more solemn silence. The darkness held a presence that was all the more felt because it was not seen. The, I could not ha- any more have doubted that he was there than that I was. Indeed, I felt myself to be, if possible, the less real of the two, end quote. When you talk about encounters with God, it's a bit like talking about the category of the beautiful. You can't just use words to describe the beautiful. There's something more that's needed The church fathers used the Latin term to describe these encounters, fascinans et tremendum. And what it means is the encounter with God is both fascinating and terrifying. There's something that you just, it messes with you. Classic biblical example, burning bush, you know, and you come across and Mo looks and he sees this burning bush and he starts to approach it because he's fascinated by it but there's something about it that's terrifying so much that he acknowledges there's something so holy he's got to take off his shoes and his soul goes low it's in these moments when God responds to her hosanna that we become aware of being creaturely and that we feel the sense of dependence on something otherly something not human the divine And when we encounter the holy, it creates this unique feeling of dependence. Some people call it a creature consciousness, where we're submerged and overwhelmed by our own nothingness in contrast to what is supreme and above all, God. This idea of fascination and terror is caught in the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, where he portrays the Christ character as this this full-grown lion named Aslan. And one of the forest creatures, uh, when Aslan is leaving, Lucy, the youngest of this little group of children, is wanting to go after Aslan. And, but he's told, she's told by one of the forest creatures, you must not press Aslan. Aslan is wild, you know. He's not a tame lion. <laughs> Aslan is not a tame Lion, Lucy replies, but he is good. The creature goes, yes, he is, but he's not tame. This is our God. 
We, he is good, we approach him with open hearts, but the reality is we have to understand he is not just us. He's come to us, but he's beyond us. There's a wildness to God. He doesn't always do what you want. He'll sometimes call you to do what you don't want, and sometimes he'll ask you to do crazy things, like start a business, or go to a mission field. Or, or he'll tell you something crazy like your life matters even though you're in an ordinary job. You can still matter. I have a friend who her story was that she grew into teen years and she was suicidal and she was hospitalized on a couple of different occasions. And when she came to Christ later in her life, She's telling me the story, and she said, you know what saved me from actually doing the deed? I mean, I would kind of do it when I knew people would come around and save me. She said, what saved me? She said, I was, when I was a kid in a Sunday school class, this lady said something to me, and that I would hear her words ringing in me every time I got serious about actually taking my life. What if God has words for you to say in your everyday life? as a mom, as a teacher, as a person who visits the stores and shops. I mean, you don't know what God's going to be doing with you. What if he's wild enough to use you, you insignificant slug? <laughs> Sometimes he'll do a wild thing like telling you to turn from a friendship that's corrupting you even though you really like it. But God knows your weakness. Or he'll tell you to face your addictions and actually come out with it when you, everything in you wants to hide it. It's too risky, it's too risky. And God said, no, I'm wild enough and I'm calling you to this crazy, open up about it or you won't change. Or sometimes he'll ask you to do something as crazy as tithing. What is that? <laughs> or forgiving someone when you know they're just gonna do it again. You choose to forgive them. All these kind of things. Why? Because God's not tame. When we cry Hosanna, he always comes. So let me close with this. I want to give you two little Hosanna action steps you can take. The first one is simply recognize that the God you're crying Hosanna to is always filling you and everything that's around you. The world is enchanted. God is the one behind the sunshine. God is the one in everyone's life, everywhere. The scripture says he fills all things, which means all people. Obviously, most people are not aware of him, and that's the problem. The scripture says Satan blinds the minds of people so they can't see God. It's not that God isn't there, it's just that he's not seen. And what ends up happening is that even Paul said to the pagans, in him, in God you live and move and have your being. And he's able, any of you can reach out to him, Paul says, because he's near all of us. Most of the time we just can't see him. There's a kind of blindness in us. Augustine said this, quote, late have I loved you, God, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within, and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, but I was not with you, end quote. What if that's true for you? What if he's always with you? 
What if there's nothing you can do to change that, whether you're naughty or whether you're nice? That God is always with you. The deception of sin, at least in part, is to trick you into thinking God couldn't be with you or your life would be different. God couldn't be with you because look at how awful you are. But what if he just is? What, what if we started to pray for God to open our eyes to see that? And then the last thing, secondly, after you recognize his presence is with you and around you and in you, seek that presence with an open supple, which means you, you're able to be you know, sort of bent and, and framed and formed. Have this supple, open heart as you utter, Hosanna, and try to seek moments where you're just saying, God, help. I mean, these can be so simple when you wake up, when you're in the shower, when you're in the car driving, waiting at stoplights, waiting in the line in the grocery store, just crying, Hosanna. Or when you're in your waiting for this next meeting to start, if you're in, in a business, or waiting. I remember how often I used to wait when our children, really we had four kids, and, and we would, I'd have to wait when they were in preschool, or even younger than that, little toddlers, when they were able to walk, but you know, couldn't do all the business that they needed to do. And I'd sit out there in front of those public bathroom stalls for a long time, because I was responsible for the paperwork. And I figured out early in my, in my being a parent that about 60% of my adult life was outside a public restroom stall. <laughs> Cry Hosanna. I mean, there's all kinds of moments. Find moments in your day and draw in his presence like a plant draws water and nutrients out of the soil. You should use your imagination. God, you're here. I'm calling upon you. I'm opening up to you. You're not trying to get to him. You're opening up to a God who's already there. And use your imagination. I mean, most of you, or many of you, in my guess, have amazing, some of you have some incredible imaginations, but they're all for ill. I mean, you have this crazy imagination for fear, crazy imagination for your kids to go camping, and all you see when they've left, you know, that they're eaten by a bear by their tent, and it's vivid to you. And you live, you give, or some of you have evil imagination. I mean, you can imagine the worst happening. What if God gave you an imagination, but he wants you to use it for good? And, and take it, and instead of imagining destruction, imagine he's with you. Imagine that you're drawing from him like a plant draws from the ground, and that you're opening up your heart. What would take place in your life if you started doing that? Cry Hosanna inside and draw him into your mind. The psalmist said seven times a day, I will praise you. If you cry, Hosanna, he will come. A huge part of being a person of faith is just developing good habits. This imaginative habit, these ideas are one of those habits. So, this week, Holy Week. It's when we remember how Jesus fully entered into our sin and our death and then conquered them, which means we don't have to stay the way we are now. Life does not have to suck for you. It can be full. Show up this Wednesday, watch some people get dunked. Hopefully we won't lose anyone in the drowning. <laughs> then it's Good Friday. It's a little depressing. That's okay. We should be a little depressed over the loss. And then here comes Sunday morning and it's going to be party time. In Green Bay speak, Easter is the Packers win the Super Bowl and there's free beer in the streets. <laughs> we call it glory beer. <laughs>